You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, and today I want to talk about suffering. I want to talk about its purposes in shaping hard men, some of the ways God has used suffering as the formative principle in school for training in my own life, and I want to look at why is it that the best men are those who have suffered much. And I want us to see just how trials create in us virtues like fortitude, long-suffering, courage, and even patience under trial. And finally, I want to examine and connect the ways in which suffering is being used in God's larger moment in the church and the nation. I want to talk about how I think God is going to use this new generation of men who have suffered to bring about the changing of the guard in the leadership of the broader church in America, and why I think that's going to happen in the coming days and months and years. So first of all, I want to share with you some of the ways over the last couple of years that God has been shaping me through my own sufferings. Now, I share some of my own personal story for two main reasons. First, Paul told the Corinthian church that, quote, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. 2 Corinthians 1, 8. You see, in Paul's estimation, it was good. It was a good thing for the church to know just how severely he and the other leaders were suffering. I think what Paul was doing is he was trying to encourage the church to show them how God had delivered him from such deadly situations. And so Paul does two things. First, he's very, very real and honest about the depth of his suffering. And he tells us in this passage, I despaired of life itself. They were no kid glove trials. They were the moments that brought the illustrious Apostle Paul to his knees, the best of men. And so I don't remember if it was Spurgeon or someone else, but they said that we gain so much when we see our heroes of the faith suffering greatly and then overcoming by the grace of God. This does us much good, more good, in fact, than it would do us if we never saw them suffer at all. So Paul is very clear. He says, my sufferings were real, they were massive, and they brought me to my knees. Now, I want you to see this as well. As Paul met these trials, as he was nearly crushed, he tells us throughout 2 Corinthians that the resurrected Jesus met him with strength. And this is where we find our encouragement. God met Paul with his power in Paul's weakness to display the sufficiency of the power of Jesus Christ. And what Paul wants you to know is that this power in and through Jesus can be yours as well. doesn't matter how weak you are. In fact, Paul will go on to say, I boast in my weakness because when I am weak, then he is strong. So in your deepest, darkest moments, the grace and power of Jesus can shine through. Now, the second reason that I share my personal history is something that a listener sent to me the other day. I really appreciated his feedback. He writes, in the last episode where you talked about masculine movies, you talked about why suffering was important and how you were at times like James Braddock and Cinderella Man, quote, prayed out. 
That really hit home for me as I feel the same right now. I don't want to bore you with my personal troubles, but I would kindly ask if you could do a podcast episode on suffering, maybe with some personal stories of from your own story or people you know, because I find these stories so important to help one grow personally as you see how other men overcame the adversity of their life and how they came out at the other end of their suffering. I think what our listener understands is that we need to see men suffering, men that we respect, men who are hard, and we need to understand what they've gone through and how they've overcome, how God has been at work in their life and in their story so that we ourselves can be encouraged. As we share the tale of our sufferings, we also have the opportunity to share the grace and power of God. It's that grace that strengthens us for endurance under the weight of such burdens. And so, again, just to reiterate this, Paul doesn't downplay his sufferings, because if he did, he would be downplaying the power of the grace of God. So that's what I want to continue to do today, is unpack a little bit about my story and the power and grace of God in and through that story. I'll start a couple years ago. I could go way further back than this, but this is a brief, just a brief look and snapshot of the last couple years in my life, dating back to about 2014. Several years ago, I became an elder at a small church, a rural church, in the West. At the time, I was working as an editor at a gun magazine. Now, while there, I and the session, which I was a part of, happened to be going through the painstaking process of dealing with pastoral sin. This was a process that took over a year. It consumed much of our time. And I know, I can speak for myself and the other elders, we were exhausted and discouraged. We had hoped that the pastor would be restored. He went through counseling, and eventually he was counseled by a much older and wiser pastor that it would be appropriate for him to step down and leave the ministry altogether. Now, while we were relieved that this process was over, you can imagine we were discouraged. We were now without a pastor after a lengthy, arduous year of trying to figure things out. And by the way, while all of this was going on, my wife and I had spent a bulk of that same year counseling a woman and her husband. Now, the husband was abusive. He was addicted to drugs and alcohol. He threatened her. He was dangerous around the children. We counseled them every week, sometimes multiple times. I was on the phone continually. Eventually, she had to get a restraining order. We stood by her. We helped her move multiple times to get away from him. I remember sitting through court with her. And again, as you can imagine, it was just draining emotionally and physically. We walked with their family through this unyieldingly difficult trial. It was lengthy. And because of that, we ourselves were bearing that emotional, physical burden. Now, simultaneous with all of this, I eventually began filling the pulpit. Uh, The church, after some weeks of preaching, uh, had come to me, the elders, as well as the body, and they said, look, we think God is calling you to be our pastor. Now, simultaneous and concurrent with this, I was being pushed out of the editorship of the magazine. A new owner had taken over, and he had decided that he wanted someone else for that role. Of course, instead of coming to me and telling me, hey, I, I just don't like you, whatever, I want somebody new. Their process was to make life as miserable as possible so that I would leave on my own accord, which I eventually did. I took the pastorate, I continued some freelance work, and I said goodbye to a job that 
at one time I had really, really enjoyed. Now, you have to understand the church at this time was a relatively hostile environment. There was a lot of hard-heartedness. There was a lot of worldliness among the people, though not all, but even among the eldership. Soon after I had taken over as pastor, I began a series on holiness. Uh, I preached uh, through Hebrews chapter 12 and dealt with a lot of the topics that are found in J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. And I remember one poignant moment after a sermon when an elder came to me and he said, listen, Eric, if you're going to keep preaching like that, you're going to see people flock away from this church. You need to stop it. And I remember sitting there thinking in this moment, am I going to obey God or am I going to obey this man? Which is, he was clearly walking in hard-hearted sin. It was a church where no one wanted their sins addressed. But by the grace of God, I decided that my job was to address them and to be faithful, preaching the word in season and out of season. Whether it was yielding an increase of growth in the church or whether it was increasing hostility, it was my job to keep preaching the word faithfully. So preach I did. I ministered, I disciplined, and I tried to lead the people as best I could. As it turned out, the only thing that increased was hostility. There were some church members who supported me, but the main sentiment was that the congregation was coldly indifferent and oftentimes antagonistic. After nearly three years of a slow death within the church, the last elder, who was a man I'd spent years befriending and even coming alongside, spent many hours with him, reading books, praying with him, trying to lead him, well, he left the church after I confronted him about some very serious personal sin issues in his life. He fled discipline, but not before dividing the church and turning the remaining leadership against me. He even went so far as to turn his own family against me, people who didn't go to the church. Very common tactic in small-town communities. As a result of this, he left. Our family was sort of ostracized, and the church was left with about 15 people. It was at this point that the deacons of the church told me they would begin decreasing my already meager pay, and they encouraged me to begin looking for a job elsewhere. Now, they informed me of this just days before Christmas that year, and despite the fact that the church was without debt and had tens of thousands of dollars in the bank, I was eventually sent away without severance, and no assistance was offered to us for moving. No one showed up to our house to pack, and we were sort of left alone in that situation. It was a very, very difficult time. In the transition away from the church, my family was seeking recovery. We were looking for a time of respite. And I'd been talking with some friends at another church in the Midwest where we decided to move. The pastor at that church had asked me to be his assistant pastor and reportedly had the support of the elders there. So we moved across the country and I continued freelance work as well as working for a local businessman from that church. Now, about two weeks after I got there, the pastor informed the session on which I sat that he had mismanaged not only his own money, but that of the church as well. In turn, he'd been working a full-time job, unbeknownst to the elders, while receiving full-time pay as the pastor, but not doing that job. As a result, of course, the church was sort of in disarray, relationships were breaking down, he hadn't been doing his job, and now there were massive 
financial problems. Well, of course, the first thing that happened was they told me, we are not going to be able to pay you to fulfill this position, which you moved across the country to fulfill. Uh, Likewise, it's almost comical, the businessman I had come to work for decided to close the part of the business that I was working in, and so I was yet again left without employment. It was out of the fire and into the frying pan. We had come here to find respite and health and peace for our family, and we had found exactly the opposite. On top of all this, there were lies and there were the deep hurts from the many betrayals that had taken place. We were there for only a few short months, and then we decided to move back home. Of course, in the process of all that, we lost at least $10,000 through both of the moves, having to pay to rent a house, then having to pay to get out of that rental early just so that we could move back home and try to find some semblance of peace. It's interesting that in this church, as well as the one that we had just left prior to that, they covered no moving expenses. And so coming or going, we were responsible to bear the cost of all of that. They didn't reimburse us for any of it. So on top of all the difficulty of the betrayal and the situation that was going on, we also had the financial strain of dealing with being sinned against by two different churches. Now, after we had moved back home, we found a little bit of stability, at least for a little while. Soon afterwards, I was approached and eventually was hired for a really very highly coveted job within the industry in which I work. I was excited, and the people that I was working with um, were really wonderful people. I enjoyed my job, and again, those who I was working with. Then about three weeks after the start date of that job, the, the coronavirus showed up, and within about a week and a half of that first three weeks, I was, first my pay was docked, then I was furloughed. In all of it, I would echo the words of Paul when he said this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, about a year ago, someone, and someone had shared this just recently, but I had written this about one year ago. This was a Facebook post, and I said this, There are long seasons when God appoints painful trials with no apparent terminus, and we are tempted to lose heart. Chronic pain, Enduring illness, long-standing legal battles, troubled relationships, organizations on the brink of collapse, sleepless nights, a long string of vocational failures, the long-term care of loved ones whose bodies and minds fail them, and more. These are God's grace to us, whereby we learn a long obedience in the same direction and mature in the Spirit's fruit of long-suffering. The trial Dearly beloved, will soon be over. 
There is an end. The promise is sure. Never, never, never give in. For Hebrews 10.36-39 tells us, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of their souls. This brings me to the second main thing I want to address in this episode, and that's this. How has God been forming my character during this time? And as I go through this, I hope it's an encouragement to you about how you can lean into the will of God, you can lean into Christ, you can lean into the scriptures, and you can find hope for your own trials. So the first thing I want to say is this. The number one thing that sustained me through the severity of all these trials and one of the biggest graces that I can think of was that I was preaching. And so week by week, I was in God's word. And every single week, I would think, God, I can't do this. I cannot go into the pulpit and I cannot preach to a people who more or less are either indifferent or hate me. There is a congregation of people who could care less about the word of God Every week I pour my heart into it, and every week they do not care. They're aggravated that I preach the truth of God with boldness and clarity. And every week God would meet me in his word, and when I felt like I had no strength, I would find strength in Christ. And again, his power would be perfected in weakness, and I would find new courage, and I would, by his grace, preach boldly. So that's number one. Turn to the word of God. You have to be a people who are bathing in the Word of God. That's the only way that you will make it through suffering. One of the most precious books that I preached through during this time was the book of Philippians, and I commend it to you. Paul finds silver linings. He rests himself in the hope of God. I know that what God started, he is going to complete in you. Listen, Christian, God is the reason for your existence as a Christian man. He is sanctifying you, and he will bring it to completion. And all these things which are happening, which appear to be against the gospel, Paul said, I know that this has turned out for my good and for the glory of the gospel. So keep hoping. So that is the word of God. That's where I found my strength. Now, second, and maybe above all, one of the lessons that I've learned is from Hebrews, which I have mentioned just a minute ago. It's this. Intense suffering is reserved for God's choicest sons. Let me say it one more time. Intense suffering is reserved for God's choicest sons. When you are going through suffering, your temptation is to think, God must be angry with me. The universe or cruel fate or something is against me. The disciples were on the sea and the wind and the waves were against them. And what you need to hear most desperately in the midst of your suffering is that if you suffer much, it is because you are loved much, Christian brothers and sisters. We have need of endurance. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. And he likewise tells us that if you suffer, it's because God loves you. He's acting as your father. The reason that you are experiencing the fiery trial is because your father loves you. 
and he is purifying you. The suffering is a purifying instrument for your holiness. It's not because he doesn't love you, which is what Satan tempts us with every time we meet with trials. That's right. Every trial is a gift of the Father's love, and this is what I've had to learn in the midst of my sufferings. God is teaching you, and as he was teaching me, how to slay dragons. How to slay dragons when it feels like your heart is being ripped out of your chest. How to outlast the enemy. How to keep hoping against hope like Abraham when there seems to be no hope. How to keep hoping. Remember what it says in Romans. Abraham grew strong as day by day he sowed his seed and his wife remained barren. <laughs> he, he remained strong. He grew stronger through the constant defeats. And so will you. That's God's encouragement to his sons. Every day keep sowing. Watch as the womb is barren and grow stronger in your faith. That's how you become a son who inherits the promise. What did God teach me? God taught me how to keep faithfully plodding while the enemy is burning your fields, while the seed is being plucked up by Satan, while people are rejecting you. You see, this is the problem with mainstream evangelicalism. Most of them grew up in suburban, nice, posh environments. They had fathers and families and stability. They went into the SBC or they went into the PCA and yay, my professor wants me to be his teaching assistant. And you climb the ladder and you're well received. This is not where God's bold preaching men throughout history have generally come from. This is what I learned during this time. I've learned that faithfulness in the life of Job, in the life of Joseph, and in Jesus, and in the prophets is found in intense suffering. Jeremiah was a man like David after God's own heart. He was faithful his entire life. And you know what? He never had vocational success the way we would define it in our culture today. I've learned these qualities of suffering well through the biographies of faithful, godly, blameless men. You need to be picking up biographies. So read the biographies of Stonewall Jackson. He lived in a perilous time, he risked his life, and he is a man who takes your breath away because of his moral virtue and his character. And you need to be looking to men like this. We need heroes of the faith, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We need heroes of the faith, like Robert E. Lee and Teddy Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. And here's something that you'll notice, as I've noticed. These are great men. And great men do not come from easy times. You will never hear of a man of great moral conviction and intestinal fortitude who is not reared in the school of severe adversity. Hard times produce great men. And so if you say and you pray, and you should, God, I want to be a great man. I want to be the kind of man like Stonewall Jackson, whose men revere him because he is a man of courage and grit. If you want to be that man and you want to pray to God to be that kind of man, God is going to bring trials into your life that buckle your knees. Right? The number of trials that I've been through in my life, I can 
I can say there's at least a dozen moments in the last 10 years where I fell to the floor, fell on the lawn, and tears became streaming down my face because life had punched me in the gut. And I said, God, I just, what am I supposed to do in this trial? I don't even know how to respond to this, Lord. I don't even have the strength to stand right now. And so like Job, I'm in dust and ashes and I'm weeping. I want you to hear this, men. If that's you, understand this. God is at work in your life. Jesus said that he and the Father were always working. And what are they doing in your hard times? They are producing great men. If you want to be great, you're going to go through severe trials. And when you do, know this, God loves you. When you meet with severe trials as a Christian, you ought to know this. These trials, when you walk in obedience in them, are a manifestation of the reality of God's whole-souled commitment to you, his covenant love. He is doing you good. And you need to know that. Why is it so important? Because so many times we feel like there's this cosmic vendetta being waged against us. Right? My wife and I have had this saying, which comes from Dan in real life. Remember, he keeps rolling through the stop sign and like the fourth or fifth time, I don't remember what it was. He finally says to the officer, put it on my tab. Right? We have seen so much suffering and things have continually gotten worse and worse and worse that it's become sort of a joke in our family. Put it on my tab. It's not surprising that this got worse, right? Have you ever had the times in your life when your all-time low moments seem to keep outdoing themselves in almost a comedic fashion? That's what we've been through. And it's easy to pity yourself in these moments. It's easy to lose hope and to say to yourself, I don't have any hope. And you know where I go? I go to the Proverbs. And I hear the wisdom of Solomon who said that a living dog is better than a dead lion. As long as you're alive, there's hope. I've lost three jobs in the last year, none of which had anything to do with my effort. And it was almost interesting. It was interesting in every single one of those because my bosses would say things to me like, man, this is so weird. You're such an amazing worker and you were so faithful. One of the elders at the church, when I left, I, I tried to repent of sin. I said, you know, I'm sure I've sinned in this situation. And he looked at me and he said, no, you have not sinned. Right? And we hear those things in scripture too, don't we? Noah was a blameless man. Now, I'm not saying that at no point in time did I sin during those process, but my point is, and I think God was clear about it, these bad things were not happening to me because I sinned. My effort was there. My commitment to Christ was there during it. I walked through those situations for the most part with integrity, and yet the blows kept coming. And here's what I want you to hear. Here's what I want you to be encouraged about. These moments have been so low, and I've been there, like Paul said, I despaired of life itself, and they've come for so long. Psalm 42, your waves and your breakers have washed over me. Every time that I caught my breath, every time that I stood up and I said, okay, I think I found the strength to stand again, another wave would hit. And it's been going like that, man, for two, three, four years. Severe trials. 
But every time that I've been knocked to the ground, every time the undertow threatens to pull me back into the ocean, God has used biography. He's used history. He's used the scriptures and admonishment from them. And he has strengthened me to get back in the fight. He's used other people. Right in the season that we're facing right now, I'm unemployed, except for some freelance work. There have been people in our church who have invited us over for dinner every week, multiple times. And they feed us and they feed our kids. And they love on us. God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you. I will not, I will not, I will not, I will not forsake you. It does not matter how hard it gets. Paul said the lesson is this. Learn how to depend on Christ who raised from the dead. Right? You depend on him who has the power of resurrection. This is what these trials are meant to teach you. Right? And one of the odd things about all this is that because of the trials, God has, over the years, brought about what is now the Hard Men podcast. And I want you to know, men, it's not the lessons of this podcast are things that I have lived deeply and personally. Here's the deal. If you pray for moral virtue, expect a life of suffering. Because that's where moral virtue comes from. And when you suffer, recognize the gracious hand of God in your life at work. Keep your eyes on the silver linings and on scripture, through which God always supplies strength. You should give thanks for the smallest blessings, Philippians 4. No matter what your anxieties are, cast them on the Lord, and he will give you peace to guard your heart. You keep breathing. And as one of my best friends always tells me, I say, how do you make it through this difficult time? And she always tells me, just remember, no one's shooting. Right? Be grateful that no one is shooting. And carry on with your duties for the day. Now, third and finally, I want to put this in the perspective of the bigger picture. So this, third point. While the world was going soft, God was reserving sons of holy thunder for himself in the fires of adversity. Anyone with a partial vision in at least part of one eye can see that America is being lost to the left, to Marxism, to feminism, the church itself, big evangelicalism. Our leaders have sold us out, right? If you've watched Braveheart, there's a one-to-one parallel between most evangelical leaders today and the Scottish nobility. They have sold their country for scraps from the world's table. Doug Wilson recently wrote this, quote, So what the evangelical world actually needs is a changing of the guard. We need new leadership. We need to identify those men who have been warning the evangelical world for decades about what is coming down the pike and who have now been proven right. The old guard has been fooling around with tepid half-measures, a little respectable growling here and there, but they have not seen and identified the threat for what it was. They have not been willing to see the threat for what it was all along. And Doug Wilson goes on to say this, and this man, I want you to hear this. If you have suffered much, I want you to hear this. But no worries, Doug writes, God will raise up somebody. God will send us a leader who has a clue about the times we are in. 
but I can assure you that he won't have the pedigree they want. He won't have the manners they want, and he won't have the connections on the Big Eva conference circuit. On the upside, however, he will know what is going on. End quote. Now, I would change that just a little bit from what Doug said. God is going to raise up somebodies. He's going to raise up leaders. And I want you to know, where are these leaders going to come from? They're going to come from the wilderness of suffering and trial. They are not going to come from the establishment. The church is in hot water today because it has had worldly, shoddy leaders who are in love with the world's praise. This is why they punch hard to the right and they soft pedal to the left, because they love the left. They want their approval desperately. And so they were willing to sell out the church. The generation that is present and the older men who led it have led it into an ambush. And that's what we're seeing in the culture right now. So where will the next generation of faithful leaders come from? Well, there's my prediction. This is what I think. This is what I believe. These men who are going to lead the church back into battle are not going to be men who came from the establishment. They're not going to be men who had soft, cushy, easy lives. They're going to be fatherless bastards who know the pain of living life without fathers. They're going to come from outside the establishment. While the denominational bigwigs were getting fat on promotions and appointments, to prestigious seminaries and the lobbying arms of the conventions, here's looking at you, ERLC, God's men were bleeding. They were alone and they were forgotten. They were in the wild like Jesus, with the Spirit and with Satan and with temptation and with trial. God was forging his men in the wilderness, like Elijah and like John the Baptist, men who were raised to care nothing for the accolades of men. Listen, if you, if you were raised eating grasshoppers and wearing camel hair, you obviously cannot care what men think of you. So again, men, if you were suffering this whole time, it's like the last decades, like me, the last couple decades you were suffering and things were hard and life kept hitting you harder and harder every single time, I just want you to know that your God's, your God's Work is happening in your life. I want you to know, if you've lived this way in obedience to Christ, God is at work in your life. God needs, and God is looking for men who cannot be bought, men who cannot be bullied, men who cannot be silenced and bribed to shut their mouths from the scraps at the world's table. God is going to raise up great men in the spirit of John the Baptist. Men who've suffered much. Al Mohler's school was the posh and nice Southern Seminary. Trust me, I've been there. I went to school there. However, Christ's school, as the Puritans taught, is suffering. Now, I want to close with this. Recently, my friend Jacob Pippin wrote an article titled The Epidemic of Fatherlessness, which I ran on my website, ericcon.com. I'll provide a link for that at the end of the show notes. Now, in his article, Jacob described his own fatherlessness and the pain of wandering through the world without masculine direction. In response to the article, Chris Wiley, or you might know him as C.R. Wiley from his books, he commented and he wrote this, and I want to read it to you because it's so poignant. Mr. Wiley, Pastor Wiley writes this, This took me back to my childhood in more ways than one. 
I recall hearing somewhere that smell may be the sense that is most strongly tied to memory. When I read this, I can smell fatherlessness. It smells like cheap beer, stale cigarette smoke, and sweat. I'm growing increasingly certain that the only men who will stand up against the forces of chaos are those with deep scars. Those scars make it impossible for them to be bought. Most of the effeminate young preacher boys in the reformed world these days grew up in upper-middle-class suburban homes. A disturbing number of them were actually homeschooled. They're looking for acceptance from the gatekeepers of a debased culture, and they're more than willing to publicly denounce any hint that solid fathers are the basis of culture. Only guys like Pippin will go down telling the truth whether people want to hear it or not. End quote. So, men, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Christ loves to raise up men from the ashes of suffering. I think that while the church has been sliding into critical race theory and egalitarian feminist Marxism, same-sex attraction, all this has been going on for decades. But during that time, God was not absent. He was reserving men for himself, just as he did in Elijah's day. He was hiding them in the wilderness of affliction and suffering, far from the eye of Sauron. They're not the names you know, but they are men who know how to suffer. They know how to fight with courage, and they know how to take out a machine gun nest from the enemy's hill. They are the men who, as Doug Wilson points out, will lead the true armies of God in the next wave of cultural warfare. What is all the suffering about in your life, men? Well, it's this. God loves you too much to leave you soft. God wants hard men, and he hardens you through the trials and suffering and affliction which you've been facing. Every trial for the Christian is a reminder of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He is our elder brother, and he teaches us how to suffer. And your sufferings are the Father's deepest affections poured out on your life. Remember this, men. He who suffers most in obedience to Christ is most loved by God. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I'll include in the show notes places that you can follow me. Of course, I encourage you to lend your support through Patreon so that this good work of reclaiming biblical masculinity can go on. You can find exclusive offers on there right now, including for VIP contributors, you can get a Hardman Podcast pint glass, 16 ounces, and let the next pint be on us. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.